Alrighty, well, hey, how many guys would say that when you come to a church service, okay, if nothing else, you should at least expect to get some good advice for living life, right? You know what I'm saying, Mary? I mean, that's at least bare, bare minimum, okay? And that's right, folks, because I care about you, and somehow I've got to earn that paycheck. Uh, I'm here to help you out. I'm going to share with you this morning some great advice on living life. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, and it's not for me, oh no, contraire, but from people who are much more smarter than I, I'm going to share some great advice from kids, okay? And they're going to share some advice with us on how to have a great loving relationship. Isn't that a great way to start this year off? That's yeah, okay. Let's take a look at some kids. They got some great practical advice when it comes to having a healthy relationship. Uh, let's take a look. One kid was asked this question, hey, what would you do on a first date that was turning sour? That's important. Well, here's what this kid said. Craig, age nine, says, hey, I'd run home and play dead. The next day, I would call the newspapers and make sure they wrote about me in all the dead columns. You know what I'm saying? What you do, apparently. Another kid was asked, hey, what's the proper age to get married? This guy's motivated. Listen to this. Tom, age 10, said, hey, once I'm done with kindergarten, I'm going to go find me a wife. <laughs> yeah, guys, I tell you, he knows what he wants. One kid says, hey, how do you decide who to marry? Right? That's a big, important question. Well, Alan, age 10, says, hey, you got to find somebody who likes the same stuff. Like, if you like sports, she should like it that you like sports, and she should keep that chips and dips coming. Woo! Yeah! Ladies, how many guys would say he's getting married? Yeah, okay. But anyway, he's, he, he knows what he wants. Here's one kid said, hey, how can a stranger tell if two people are married? Right? That's a brilliant deduction from this guy, Derek, age eight. He says, you might have to guess based on whether they seem to be yelling at the same kids. That's actually a really good deduction, isn't it? Amazing. Uh, one kid said, hey, when is it okay to kiss someone? He was asked that question. Well, uh, Jim, age 10, said this, hey, you should never kiss a girl unless you got enough bucks to buy her a ring in her own VCR because she's going to want to have videos of the wedding. You know what I'm saying? But uh, another kid says, hey, why do lovers often hold hands? What's the secret behind that? Well, hey, this kid, uh, Dave, age eight, he says, hey, they want to make sure the rings don't fall off because they pay good money for them. You know what I'm saying? Those things, I tell you what, but anyway, that's right. Another kid says, this is important. Come on, folks. First of the year, start it off right. How do you make love endure? How many guys want to, okay? Well, listen, this, this guy's got to figure it out. Randy, age eight, says, hey, be a good kisser. It might make your wife forget you never take out the trash. You know what I'm saying? But I tell you what, this guy, he's got it all figured out. He is a genius. How do you make marriage work? Anybody married here today? Okay, here's the code word. For those of you who are married, please raise your hand. You'll be having trouble when you get home. Okay, that's right. Here's what he says. How do you make that thing work? Oh, man, this guy's got it. Uh, Ricky, age 10, says this. You tell your wife that she looks pretty even if she looks like a truck. <laughs> that guy's a genius. And my wife's not here today. But anyway, apparently, folks, as you guys can see, <laughs> there's a lot of great advice out there on living life, isn't there, right? It's all over the place. Even kids know it. It's all over there. But that's right, folks. To me, this morning, probably the greatest advice I could ever give to you as a pastor, uh, not just in your relationship with your spouse, but in your relationship with God, would have to be this. Would you please never, ever, 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 ever doubt that the Bible really did come from God? And folks, I say that because if you were here last week, we saw the unfortunate news, okay? It, it doesn't matter. It's not just the non-Christians. It's even the Christian are starting to doubt that the Bible really came from God. And it's due to a century or more of skepticism and false criticism towards the Bible and the hypocritical behavior of Christians and how they treat the Bible, they never even pick it up, okay, that people, Christian or non-Christian, are starting to doubt that the Bible really did come from God. Therefore, to stave off this criticism in hypocrisy, even in the church, hello, okay, we're going to continue in our study we started last week, did the Bible really come from God? Did the Bible really come from God? 
Hey, praise God, I can continue on. That would have been a long pause. Uh, but anyway, what we're doing is, you see, we're here last week, we're looking at 10 lines of solid logical, not just biblical, as if that's bad, 10 lines of solid logical evidence showing us that the Bible really came from God. And last week we saw the first evidence was, hello, the Bible says so. Okay, and this is actually a very major uh, important point. God over and over and over and over again emphatically tells us that the Bible came from him. Why? Because he wants us to know the truth. The truth is what sets us free, not only in salvation, but also in sanctification and growing up in Christ. He is holy. He doesn't lie like men, okay? He wants us to know the truth. And that's why he not only says the Bible came from him, and you might want to read it once in a while, hello, but he tells us in the Bible to stay away to the contrary from false worldly prophets and false churchy prophets because he says there are a bunch of liars who are out there to lead you astray and if they come near the church, you need to kick them out, okay? God wants us to know the truth. That's why he says the Bible came from him. You just stick to it and you'll be just fine. You won't be uh, discouraged or uh, distracted like those other guys will do. But that's not all. The second line of evidence showing us that the Bible really did come from God is because guess what? Jesus says so. Now, how many guys would say if Jesus says something, it's not only true, hello, he is the way, the truth, and the life, but you might want to listen to what he says. Good answer, especially during a Christian church service, okay? But again, don't take my word for it. He clearly taught the Bible really did come from God. Open your Bibles to Matthew 4. Matthew 4 is our opening text here. Matthew 4, if you find Malachi, what do you do? <laughs> take it there. Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 1 through 11 as we take a look at Jesus and his behavior, attitude, and dare I say, obviously, his belief towards the Bible, towards the scripture. And this is what we're going to see with the infamous passage with his temptation with Satan himself. Okay, and how did Jesus handle that? Let's take a look at that uh, classic passage. Matthew chapter 4, starting with verse 1, says this Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was what? He was hungry. So the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written. Okay, man does not live on bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of who? God. Then the devil, he didn't quit. He took him to the holy city and had him, Jesus, stand on the highest point of the temple. And he says this, if you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and they lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, hey, put it in context, buddy. It's also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And again, the devil, he took him now to a very high mountain and he showed him, Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he says to Jesus, all this I'll give to you if you will bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, away from me, Satan, for it is written, he says there. Now, when he says it's written, what's he implying? What's he quoting? The Old Testament scriptures, the Bible, okay, in that fashion, okay. He says, worship the Lord your God and serve him only, okay. And then the devil left him, Jesus, and the angels came and attended unto Jesus. And so here's the logical question, folks. Let's put it to the test. How do we know the Bible came from God? Well, what do we just read? Obviously, the second line of evidence is that Jesus says so, right? What do we just read there, folks? Jesus not only quoted, think about it, he not only quoted scripture to combat Satan himself, okay, but he obviously believed that it carried the ultimate authority as to why he was combating Satan himself with it, right? And that's exactly what we see because even the devil has to uh, flee and obey what the Bible says, right? Why? Because the Bible really came from God. 
And folks, believe it or not, that's just the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus himself taught about the Bible, okay? Let's take a look at some other things he said about the word of God, okay? He, he gave it divine authority. That was our passage we just read, Matthew chapter four. It came from God. He gave it indestructibility in Matthew chapter five. Uh, he continued on and gave it infallibility. No errors, folks. John chapter 10. He gave it the ultimate supremacy over every book on the planet. Hello, Matthew chapter 15. He gave it factual inerrancy. There are no errors. Matthew 22, he gave it historical reliability. Wait till we get to archaeology as evidence. Matthew chapter 12, and he gave it actual, believe it or not, yes, folks, contrary to what the skeptic would say, he gave it scientific accuracy, which means that Jesus believed, if you read the Bible, in a literal Adam and a literal Eve and a literal Garden of Eden where the first woman literally ate the first man out of literal first home, right? Because that's what happened. And apparently, if you haven't heard, that's what Adam get for trying to cut a deal with God. Here's apparently what went down. One day Adam was moping around the Garden of Eden and he was feeling really lonesome. And so God asked him, he said, hey, what's wrong, Adam? And so Adam said, hey, he didn't have anybody to talk to, you know, just those animals. And so God says, all right, tell you what, I'm gonna make you a companion. And, and, and this companion's gonna be a woman, okay? And he said that this woman's gonna cook for you. She's gonna wash your clothes. She's always gonna agree with every decision you make. She's going to bear your offspring. She's never going to ask you to get up in the middle of the night and she will not nag and she will always be the first one to admit that she was wrong in a disagreement. She's never going to have a headache and she's going to freely give you love and compassion. And so Adam, he says, man, whoa, God, <laughs> what's a woman like this going to cost? And God says, an arm and a leg. And Adam says, what can I get for a rib? <laughs> hey, the rest is history. And once again, I'm walking home. But that's right, folks. As you can see, Jesus, as you know, in all seriousness, he believed in a literal Adam and a literal Eve and a literal Garden of Eden that literally happened over literal 24-hour periods, okay? Why? Because the Bible came from God, okay? That's what he believed. That's what he taught. And so here's the point. If Jesus, listen, this is logic. Put your thinking caps on this morning. If Jesus is the Son of God, then logically that means the Bible has to be the Word of God. Why? Because the authority of Jesus confirms the authority of the Bible. One guy, he puts it this way. He says, if Jesus is the son of God, then the Bible is the word of God. Only if one rejects the divine authority of Christ can he consistently reject the authority of the scripture. If Jesus is telling the truth, then the Bible is God's word. And even if you just wanted to say that Jesus was merely a prophet, then the Bible is still confirmed as the word of God through his prophetic office. You can't have it both ways, okay? You can't agree with some of Jesus' teaching and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible. Why? Because Jesus clearly presented the Bible as the genuine word of God. And anything short of this is intellectual hypocrisy. And yet that's exactly what the skeptics do about the Bible. They not only listen, they not only deny the fact that Jesus taught that the Bible really did come from God. But listen, they even go so far as to denigrate Jesus and the clear evidence is that he was who he said he was, i.e. the son of God, and therefore you might want to listen to him, including what he taught about the Bible being from God. And the first thing that they try to denigrate about Jesus, the skeptics do, is the historicity of Jesus, okay? And here's what they'll do. They'll typically say something like this. Well, what's the, come on. Come on, Christian. I mean, what's the use of even talking with you? I mean, you're brainwashed as it is. This is all a bunch of baloney anyway. Well, why am I even discussing this? Because Jesus didn't even exist, okay? They say he only appears in the Bible. And of course, that was made up by men to brainwash people. How many guys heard that kind of thing before? They actually deny the historical evidence of Jesus, okay? And so, okay, that's a, frankly, an honest question, okay? And that's a logical question. I, I hope you should be asking that. So let's put it to the test. If Jesus existed, then 
Yeah, you'd think somewhere, somewhere along the line that you'd find some uh, evidence of him existing outside the Bible, right? Well, guess what? There's tons of it. <laughs> There's tons of it all over the place. Let me give you just a few of the examples. I don't have time to go rip through them all. How about the Roman historian Tacitus? Now he wrote, folks, uh, this, quote, Nero fastened the guilt on a class of hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, that's Latin for Christ, uh, uh, from whom the name had its origin, he wrote, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of who? Pontius Pilate. It's, it's actually in Roman writings, folks. It's recorded there outside the Bible. And a most mischievous superstition, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome, you know? where Paul went eventually, he was beheaded too. Uh, not the only one. How about Pliny the Younger, as opposed to Bobby the Older? He, they've always gotten, con no, whatever. Uh, how many guys into history? Praise God, at least five of you got that joke. But anyway, that's right. He was a Roman governor of Asia Minor. He wrote about AD 112, okay? And he wrote about uh, how to handle these people being accused Christians. And here's what he wrote. He said, they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to who? To Christ. As to a who, what? God, okay, uh, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds, never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom, listen, this is cool, to separate and then reassemble to partake of food. Can I tell you what that is? Potlucks. That's right there. Even recorded, praise God, you got it, bro, uh, in uh, writings in ancient Rome. Uh, here's another one, Josephus. He was a first century Jewish historian, a contemporary of the times that Jesus came in his first coming. He wrote this about Jesus. How do you get around this one? You want to say he doesn't exist? Give me a break. About this time there lived who? Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats. He was the Christ. And when Pilate, once again, Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared even to this day. Folks, I'm telling you, it's just, it's outside the Bible too. How about the Babylonian Talmud? This is a collection of Jewish rabbinical writings compiled between 70 AD onward, okay? And it states this, on the eve of Passover, Yeshua, if you're not familiar, Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, that's the Hebrew word for Jesus, okay, was hanged. It's also hanged as a synonym for crucifixion. It even mentions it there. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he's going forth to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. That's exactly what the Pharisees charged Jesus with, remember? They said, you're doing these things. You're not the son of God. Uh, you're not the Messiah. You're doing these things under the power of Satan. And they wanted to kill him. That's exactly what they recorded, folks. Uh, how about Lucian? He's a second century Greek satirist, and he said this about Jesus. He said, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was what? Crucified on that account. It was impressed on them by their original lawgiver, i.e. Jesus, that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the what? The crucified sage Jesus and live after his laws, okay? Suetonius, he's another Roman historian, AD 69 to 140. He said this about the Christian persecution uh, by Nero in Rome in AD 64. He said he, Nero, banished from Rome all the Jews who were continually making disturbances at the instigation of one Christus, again, Christ, okay? Now, what did Paul say that they, every, every place he went, who was it that was tailing him, always causing trouble wherever he went? 
the Jewish people. And they, even the, the Romans folks, they record. That's exactly what was going on. Punishment was inflicted on the Christians, a class of men given to a new mischievous superstition. Okay, a couple more here. Thallus, he was a historian that lived in the middle of the first century AD. He wrote this about AD 52. This is wild. Uh, he, he actually recorded the darkness that fell during the crucifixion of Jesus. Julius Africanus quotes what he says. Here's what he says. On the whole world, there pressed a most fearful darkness and the rocks were rent by an earthquake and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. Even secular sources record that for us outside the Bible. And that's just the tip of the iceberg, folks. There are at least, listen, 42 different authors that mention Jesus within 150 years of his life. Now, contrast this to only the 10 authors that mention Tiberius Caesar within 150 years of his life, who was the Roman emperor during Jesus' ministry, and yet nobody ever questions his historical existence, right? Why not, folks? I mean, put your thinking caps on this morning. If you're going to question Jesus with his 42 authors, then why aren't you going to question this guy with his tomb? You cannot have it both ways. Jesus appears all over the Bible and he appears all over outside the Bible. And that's exactly what you'd expect if in fact he was historically real. Okay, but that's not this. The second thing the skeptics try to uh, denigrate about Jesus is his uniqueness. Okay, they want to downplay him all the time. And this is what's kind of funny and yet unfortunately hypocritical at the same time, okay, although the skeptics will flat out deny and they'll refuse to believe that Jesus was who he said he was, God in the flesh, and that he is the savior for all mankind, okay, because that's what we see in the Bible, okay, they will nonetheless label him as a good teacher. How many of you guys heard that one before, right? And, and they'll, they'll say something like this, well, you know, okay, yeah, maybe he existed. We see that uh, secular historical evidence outside the Bible. Okay, yeah, yeah, you got me on that one. Uh, okay, but, but he was just a good teacher. He was just like one of those guys, uh, uh, just, uh, you know, Buddha, Muhammad, or the great confused one, Confucius. Well, you, you guys heard that before? Okay, but uh, uh, it's all over the place too. Okay, but the problem is with that, folks, is this good teacher mentality is ridiculous when you actually read the Bible. And I say that because if you actually read the Bible, you'll see that Jesus did not leave us with the option of him being just merely a good teacher. Okay, either if you read the Bible, he was some sort of a liar, which is not consistent with his character that we see. Okay, two, he was some sort of a lunatic, which again is not consistent with what we see. Or he was indeed who he was, and he said he was, he is Lord God. That's what you get if you're honest intellectually and you actually read the Bible. But nonetheless, let's meet the skeptic on their terms and let's see what made Jesus so unique, unlike those other three guys, Mo, Larry, and Curly. Okay, uh, let's take a look. The first unique thing is, hello, Jesus was a miracle worker. Okay, I'm telling you folks, you tell me if Buddha, Muhammad, or the great confused one ever did things like Jesus did. I don't think so, folks. He's radically unique. Let's take a look at just a few of Jesus' miracles. He's totally unique. He converted water into wine. He heals the nobleman's son. He has an amazing catch of fish. He heals the demoniac. He heals Peter's mother-in-law. Tell me that's not an act of love. Once again, my wife is not here, but let's move on. Uh, <laughs> he cleanses the leper. He heals the paralyzed man. He healed the immobile man. He restored the withered uh, hand. He restores the centurion servants. Uh, he raises the widow's son to life. He stills the storm. He throws demons out of two guys. He raises the daughter of Jairus from the dead. He cures the woman with the issue of blood. He restores two blind men to sight. He walks upon the lake of Galilee. He heals the daughter of the Syrophoenician woman. He feeds more than uh, 4,000, then later 5,000. He restores the deaf mute man he restores a blind man he heals an epileptic boy he pays the temple tax by getting money from a fish's mouth how many guys would love to do that here in just a couple months 
Wouldn't it be great? Let's go to Lake Mead and pay our taxes. Huh? Jesus did it, folks. That's who he is. He's unique. He restored 10 lepers to wholeness. He opens the eyes of a man born blind. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He heals the woman of the spirit of infirmity. He cures the man with dropsy. He restores sight to two blind men near Jericho. He condemns the fig tree. He heals the ear of Malchus. Peter chops it off, falls on the ground. Jesus picks his ear up, pops it back on his head as good as new. And then he has another amazing second catch of fish. Okay, now folks, here's my whole point with this. Uh, let's be honest, uh, did Buddha ever do those miracles? How about uh, the great confused one? How about Muhammad? No, then how in the world can you say honestly, intellectually, that Jesus is just like those other guys? How can you lump him even in the same category? How can you say they're all just the same, just a good teacher, excuse me? He is radically, radically, radically different. But that's not all. The second unique thing we see about Jesus, unlike Mo, Larry, and Curly, is he is God. Hello, that's a major radical difference, okay? Let's take a look at just one, just one of the many passages in the Bible that clearly teach this, folks. It wasn't just a man. John chapter 20, verse 26 through 28. A week later, his disciples, Jesus' disciples, were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. Did you catch that? The doors were locked. He just appeared, okay? And it wasn't some Star Trek thing, okay? Uh, he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop what? Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my who? God. Thomas didn't just say that Jesus was Lord. He was a good teacher. He was a great guy. Okay, he clearly said he is my God. He's God. And again, that's just one of many passages. So here's the point, folks. Uh, is Buddha God? No. How about the great confused one? How about Muhammad? then how in the world can people continue to maintain the lie and continue to spout off the lie that Jesus is just like all the other guys? It's crazy. It's intellectually honest, or at least they've never been confronted uh, with the facts. I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But that's not all. The third unique thing about Jesus is how he's the creator. He's the one that made the, 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 the planets and the earth and us. I said, no, I didn't say that. God did uh, in the Bible. Colossians chapter one, listen to this. Verses 15 through 16. He, Jesus, he's the one. The image of the invisible God. Once again, he's God. Okay? And he's the firstborn or literally preeminent one over all creation. For by him, Jesus, all things were created. How many guys would say that all means all? Okay? Now, just in case you don't get that, I love the Bible. Uh, keep reading. Uh, he's going to clarify for you. Uh, uh, yes, it does mean all. It means things in heaven and on earth and visible and invisible, whether uh, thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Who? Jesus. That's what the Bible says. So here's the point. Did Buddha create the world? Did Confucius create the world? How about that Muhammad guy? No. Then how can you maintain the lie that Jesus was just like all those other guys when he is absolutely radically, radically different than all the rest? He is completely unique, unlike Mo, Larry, and Curly. And apparently that's why one guy said this. He said, people often ask, what is so unique about Jesus? He said, I mean, think about it. He possessed no certificates or degrees. He, he never traveled farther than 150 miles from where he was born. He lived and moved among common people, and he was not an author. He, he wrote no books, he composed no poems, he compiled no documents, and the only sentence he wrote was a single line in the sand which disappeared the same day. 
He never used a fountain pen or a typewriter, not even Microsoft Word. We have no line or syllable from his hand, yet do you realize that more books have been written about him and his words than any other man in man's history? Do you realize that he has affected more lives than more people in all the authors of all the ages put together and that the story of his life has now been translated into 2,500 different languages and is read every single year by billions and billions of people? No one ever spoke like this man. His discourses have become the uh, throne of millions of addresses and his words are simple and clear. In fact, today, his sayings are hammered into polished marble, chiseled into imperishable granite, wrought into enduring bronze, fashioned into stained glass windows, and his words are literary gems. He stands today unequaled over all of literature. Shakespeare, Milton, Emerson all bow their heads in his presence, recognizing the superior. He was not a poet, and yet he has inspired thousands of poets to honor honor him with their most sublime expressions. He was not a musician, and yet he inspired Mozart, Schubert, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, and Handel, and the list goes on and on. He was not an artist, a sculptor, or a painter, and yet he's the inspiration for Raphael, Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Hoffman, and many more. He was not a doctor, yet he healed the sick, he opened blind eyes, he unstopped deaf ears, and he even raised the dead. He was not a statesman, and he never held or aspired to a position, but listen, he founded a kingdom, and he became the conqueror of the world. And in just three short years in Jesus Christ's ministry here on earth, it has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence that has ever been felt in the history of mankind. And that's why it remains true to this day that no single word grips the hearts of men like the blessed name of Jesus Christ. Why? Because he's real. And he really existed. Not just in the Bible, but in history as well. And therefore, I'm kind of thinking, you might want to pay attention to what he says. Including what he said about the Bible. How about you guys? Okay, but that's not all. The third evidence showing us the Bible really did come from God was the apostles say so. Okay, the Bible says so, Jesus says so, and now the apostles say so. And believe it or not, folks, this is yet another important factor uh, because although we may not know everything about the apostles, okay, we can do some things about them and what they experienced from the Bible, okay? For instance, we know that the apostles experienced an amazing unity wherever they went because they all drove around in a Honda. Because the Bible says they were all in one accord. Yes, it was just as dumb, Tom, the last 14 times I share it, but I had to do it again just for you. But seriously, folks, when you actually read the Bible, okay, it's very obvious that the apostles truly believed that the Bible came from God. Listen, including what they were writing down for us, which was to become the New Testament, okay, in the Bible. But don't take my word for it. Let's listen to there. Second Peter, okay, chapter one, verse 16, 18, 19, 20 through 21, hike, says this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories. What'd they just say? We didn't whoop this baby up like the skeptics want to say. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to his majesty. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain, and we have the word of the prophets made more certain, and you'll do well to what? Pay attention to it, okay? Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. How did it happen? For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as what? 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is the apostles freely admit, folks, that they didn't just whip up some book like the skeptics want to charge them with. They said they were actual eyewitnesses. They actually heard it. They actually saw it. And listen, when they went about to record this eyewitness account, how did that get preserved for us? It was guided along by Holy Spirit, okay? A couple interesting facts about that. The Greek word there for carried along, okay, listen to this, spoke of a ship that was driven or carried along by the wind, okay? It spoke of a ship that was carried along by the wind, and this is a great picture of how true biblical inspiration took place, all right? Think about this. This is what the Bible says about inspiration, okay? Just as men in the boat had the freedom to move around in the boat, use their will, right? Okay, and yet even though the boat is actually being controlled by the wind, so it is when it comes to the process of biblical inspiration. The writers of the Bible had the freedom to express their own personality and writing style, and that's exactly what we see in the Bible. Each author has their own kind of personality and style, right? Yet the whole process, just like the boat analogy, was being carried along by the wind of the Holy Spirit, if you will, okay? That's true biblical inspiration. Now, you need to understand, folks, that that is radically, radically different than the so-called inspiration of other uh, sources of supposed truth that they would have you and I uh, listen to. Okay, let's take a look at those, and you tell me if it's not wise to stick with the biblical method, okay, uh, from the Holy Spirit. Let's take a look at a couple of those sources of supposed wisdom, and this is one that people got duped for many, many centuries. Okay, it was the Oracle of Delphi. You guys familiar with that? Back in the day, history, the kings, rulers, they all went to the Oracle of Delphi, to see if they should go into battle and who's going to win. I'm serious. But listen to this. This is where it all came from. Here's their inspiration. For many centuries, people went to this supposed source of prophetic truth, and it all started one day, you could check it out yourself, when a goat herder noticed his sheep were acting strange as they were looking over this particular chasm. Okay? Well, it turns out that the chasm had this gaseous vapor coming out from it, and it was causing his sheep to become agitated or become frantic. Okay? Listen, but I kid you not, soon they weren't the only ones. The next thing you know, somebody actually set a tripod over this chasm, okay, that had poisonous gas coming out of it. And uh, then these brain-altering vapors, you can see a little depiction there, uh, for, uh, were uh, released upon the person as they sat on it through a crack in the ground. Okay, and then they said, this is now a source of divine inspiration, and that's where you get the Oracle of Delphi from. From gases coming out of the ground. That's it. And kings, rulers, people went and paid cash to get wisdom from somebody high on gas because that's what's going on right okay how about and a biblical inspiration is not at all like automatic writing okay you need to pay attention to this this is the occult process by which the writer is taken over by a spirit who then causes the writer to write down words on a piece of paper without the use of their will unlike the biblical example and that the writer's totally clueless to. Okay, this is a total new age of cult, what I came out of. And people, they're actually possessed by a spirit, and they're just writing, they, they have no clue, and then they come out of their trance, okay? And, oh, hey, huh. that's not how the Bible came to us, folks. The authors used their will, their personality, they knew what they were doing, it was just guided by the Holy Spirit. Not at all like this, okay? And it's not at all like what we saw before channeling. This is the process before where a person's not just taken over by another spirit, i.e. a demon, to write words on a piece of paper, but now the demon actually takes control of their voice boxes and begins to speak through them. Let's take a look at that little video clip again. This man channels a spirit calling itself Bashar, who seems to hold his audience spellbound as he tells them they are equal to the creator of the universe. That you are all made in the image of the infinite creator, and what that means is you are all infinite creators. We thank you. 
Jack Purcell has become one of the more popular channels possessed by a spirit named Lazarus. All right, fine. <clears throat> well, indeed, a pleasure to be talking with you. And, uh, well, shall we begin where you'd like to begin? Lazarus tells the listener that God is already within man and that if man wants to find God, he needs only to find himself. Jane Roberts was a New Age pioneer who channeled a spirit known as Seth. Roberts sold more than a million copies of her books and inspired many. Some may find it interesting that the name Seth is synonymous with the Egyptian god, Set. And in the realm of the occult, Set is one of the infernal names of Satan. Now folks, that actually shouldn't be too surprising to you because these people, what you just saw, it's actual full-blown demon possession. Been there, done that before I got saved. God have mercy on me. But mention the occult. Uh, that would make sense that it's also biblical inspiration. It's not all like Mormonism. Okay, pay attention, folks. Believe it or not, it's well documented that Joseph Smith used occult techniques to get his supposed new revelation of Jesus Christ. Don't believe me? Even former Mormons have come out and admitted where he got his inspiration from. Check this out. Joseph Smith was a sorcerer and practiced crystal ball gazing or fortune telling and was convicted of his practice by the New York courts. Smith's practices of magic and necromancy led him annually during a witchcraft holy day to the Hill Camorra in New York specifically to seek encounters with a spirit being called Moroni. During this time he would attempt to conjure up the spirit from the dead. There is strong evidence that in 1824, Joseph Smith actually had to dig up the body of his dead brother Alvin and bring part of that body with him to the Hill Camorra in order to gain access to the gold plates on which were written the Book of Mormon. It was also known within his community that Joseph Smith used blood sacrifices in his magic rituals to find hidden treasure. C.R. Stafford writes, Joe Smith the prophet told my uncle William Stafford he wanted a fat black sheep. He said he wanted to cut its throat and make it walk in a circle three times around. After his death, Smith was found to be carrying a magic talisman on his person, sacred to Jupiter, designed to bring him wealth, power, and success in seducing women. Behind me is the Los Angeles Temple of the Mormon Church, and inside are many devout Mormons who are fulfilling what they consider to be godly, noble, obligations to their faith and to their God. What they don't realize though is that the rituals and the ceremonies that they are involved in are straight out of the occult. How do I know that? Because I was a Mormon who went to the temple. I attended the temple many times but more importantly I was also a high priest of Satan. Before I joined the Mormon church I had 12 years of experience in witchcraft and Satanism and when I went to the temple I was astounded at the high level of similarity. The handshakes and the grips involved, the, the secret tokens of the Aaronic priesthood and the Melchizedek priesthood are in fact right out of witchcraft and Satanism. The concept of, of putting on as part of your priesthood robes an apron which God rejected in the Garden of Eden. Lucifer himself in the temple says, this apron is a symbol of my power and priesthood. So when I went through the temple, I was ultimately very satisfied by it because I thought this was, in fact, a profound satanic initiation ceremony. 
all throughout the temple grounds here in Salt Lake City, you will find all sorts of occult symbols, symbols that are generally associated with witchcraft and Satanism. They are predominantly on the temple, but they're also on such buildings as the uh, assembly hall, and you can even find them in the visitor center. I mean, the, the place is virtually a Disneyland of occult symbols, and yet there is absolutely no Christian symbol anywhere in here. Hmm. Well, I wonder why. Maybe it has to do with your so-called method of inspiration. Folks, I don't know about you, but when you look at the facts logically, I think I'll stick to the biblical method of inspiration over those guys who were what? Involved in the occult, infested with demons, and sucked up gas to get a so-called vision. How about you? Okay, because that's the facts. But that's an all. So much so were the apostles convinced that what they were writing uh, for us actually really did come from God, not gas or demons or the occult, okay, uh, that they were actually said in their own lifetimes that that exactly it, that their writings were to be considered uh, from God. This is what we see in Second Peter, okay, chapter 3, verse 15 through 16. Peter says this, bear in mind that our Lord's patience means what? Salvation, okay, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the wisdom that who gave him? God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort. Unfortunately, they still do it today. He says, but as they do with what? The other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, here's the point. Did you guys catch that? The apostle Peter, in their lifetime, while they were still alive, actually called the apostle Paul's writings what? Scripture. And people say, well, that's just uh, the term. It just means a lot. No. Scripture that's used there is actually a technical term that is used to speak of specialized writings that carried the authority of God and were thus to be considered the actual word of God. And that's not just the only examples from the apostles. Paul goes on to quote the gospel of Luke Okay, and he too places it on the rest of scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. And so logically, if Paul and Luke's writings were to be considered as sacred writings that needed to be added to the Bible, then logically the other apostles who also were writing uh, for us should be considered sacred scripture as well, right? They said so even in their own lifetimes. People, it's not that you, know, people, well, that's, you just assume that that's, no, they said it themselves. In fact, so much so were the apostles convinced that what they wrote for us really did come from God. They not only said so, they not only said that their writings were from God, each other, not just themselves, but we have the harsh warning for us in the last book of the Bible, you better not mess with any of these words, okay? And this is what the apostle John tells us, Revelation 22, verse 18 through 19. He says, I warn everyone. How many guys would realize that that includes everyone? Okay, that who, who hears the words, the prophecy in this book, if anyone adds anything to them, Joseph Smith, uh, God will add to him the plagues described in this book, okay? And if anyone takes away the words from the book of this prophecy, God will take away from him his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which is also described in this book, okay? And folks, in other words, the Bible's saying you better not touch it, right? How many guys can figure that out without any help, Okay. And folks, maybe it's me, but I'd say that the apostles obviously seriously believed that what they were writing really did come from God because they gave us this absolutely in-your-face, uh, as plain as you can read, warning that you better not touch anything in the Bible, right? Okay, now, now listen, what you need to understand, folks, it doesn't just apply to just the book of Revelation alone, okay? Many people will say this, including, unfortunately, Mormons. They'll say, well, that's just the book of Revelation, okay? Uh, no. Put your thinking caps on again this morning. Think about it logically. If it only applied this warning, don't tamper, don't touch, with just the book of Revelation alone, which is a part of the Bible, 
then does that mean, okay, we can go ahead and manipulate and mess up and tamper with the rest of the books of the Bible? That's illogical. Or could it be that since the book of Revelation is one of the 66 books of the Bible and it just happens to be at the end of the Bible, then it, therefore, logically, it applies to all of the Bible. Don't touch it. Why? Because it really came from God. And that's exactly what the apostles believe, okay? But that's still not all. They prove this belief that what the, the Bible, the Old Testament, and what they were writing for us, the New Testament, really did come from God is they were willing to seal this belief with their lives. Okay, every single one of the apostles saved John died a horrible death for this belief. Let's take a look at that. What happened to him? Well, James, the brother John, was beheaded. Uh, Thomas was run through the body with a lance. Simon, the brother Jude, was crucified in Egypt. Simon, the zealot, he was crucified. Mark was burned and buried after being dragged through the streets. Bartholomew was beaten, skinned alive, crucified, then beheaded. Andrew was crucified. Matthew was killed by a spear. Philip was stoned and then crucified. James was thrown off the temple and then he was clubbed to death. Peter was crucified upside down. Uh, Paul was beheaded. Luke was hanged on an olive tree. Jude was shot to death by arrows. Matthias was first stoned, then beheaded. Uh, Barnabas was stoned to death. And the apostle John was put into a cauldron of boiling oil. But he survived. And he was the only one to, quote, die a so-called natural death. Okay? Now, here's my point with bringing this up, folks. If the Bible really were a lie, and it was just a book whooped up by men, and the apostles just recorded this because they wanted to keep some religion going on to manipulate people, as the skeptics would say, then think about it logically. Do you really think that every single one of those, every single one of those apostles would not just die, but die a horrible death like that? That's illogical. I mean, you would think if it really was a lie, that somewhere, somewhere along the line, at least one of those guys would have cracked and said something like, <laughs> all right, you got me. Woo-wee, you got me. All right, all right, it's a little charade going on there. I'm sorry about that. Uh, what, I, I was kidding, I was making it up. <laughs> okay, I'll just go back to fishing. I'll do something else other than this. Uh, just whatever you do, don't crucify me. Uh, uh, don't chop my head off. Don't skin me alive because it was a lie. Yet what do we see? Every single one of them, save John, who was tortured, by the way, died. A horrible death for this belief, every single one of them. Why? Because they really believed that the Bible came from God, including what they wrote down for us, which was to become the New Testament. Okay, now listen, as we close, contrast this to Joseph Smith. Once again, to bring up that topic, who although the Mormons would like to make him out to be some sort of a hero or a martyr like the true apostles, uh, he's not. Okay, it's well documented, folks, that when he was called upon to stand up uh, uh, for his uh, supposed New Testament, his new revelation of Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon, he was, listen, fleeing like a coward, running for his life. He was actually shot and killed by a mob of about 200 men for sleeping with their wives, and he was shot in the back twice in the back, trying to jump out of a window, and they shot him one more time on the ground. He didn't stand up and take it. He didn't defend his supposed source of truth. He was running like a coward. And yet, every single one of the apostles of the real New Testament revelation of Jesus Christ did. Why? Because it really came from God. Okay? And folks, this is why you can't have it both ways. You can't agree with some of the apostles' teaching and then turn around and deny the authenticity of the Bible because it's obvious, logically, if you read the Bible, that the apostles clearly believe that the Bible came from God. Okay? Then this is why we need to be encouraged today, folks. We don't have to give in to the skepticism. Okay? Uh, we don't have to give into one iota of, of doubt. What we hold in our hands is the actual words of God. And people, this is why more than ever we have to wake up and realize the golden opportunity that God has given to you and I today, the church. People in our world recognize like you and I, something is wrong with the world. And it's getting worse. 
And so now they're starting to seek out answers. They're, they're looking for answers to questions like, why do I exist? Where did I come from? Where is all this evil coming from? Is there life after death? Why am I here? Why do I exist? And is there any hope? And it's high time that you and I, the church, get busy showing our world, not just saying that the Bible came from God, but showing them the Bible really did come from God. Why? Because even if you have to read this book with your toe, you will find out that God is not only real and he really exists, but he is the only one who can make beauty out of the ashes of your life, no matter how bad things are, like he did for this guy. Let's take a look. I gave my life to Jesus Christ when I read John 9 at age 15, where a man was coming through a village, and a man, um, this, this blind man from birth, Jesus saw him. People said, why was this man born that way? Jesus said it was done so that the works of God may be revealed through him. And in 2 Timothy 3 verse 16, it says, all scripture is God breathed. And I believe God breathed in me life and faith. This faith came over me, this peace came over me, and I felt like God answered my question. And what Lord, was the question and what was the answer? The question was why? Why did you make me this way? And the answer was, do you trust me? That's the question. And when you say yes to that question, nothing else matters. And it was in Jesus Christ where Nick found the strength to do what many thought would be the impossible. that he didn't answer my prayer when I was begging him for arms and legs at age eight. Because guess what? Because I have no arms and no legs, he's using me all around the world. And we've seen so far, approximately, uh, this is conservative, 200,000 souls come to Jesus Christ for the very first time in the last six, seven years. And what would you rather? Would you rather have arms and legs, Nick, here on earth and no arms? No, whatever his will is because I'd rather have no arms, no legs temporarily here on earth to be able to reach someone else for Jesus Christ. How could that man have such an amazing joy and attitude? Because as you saw, he read the Bible with his toe. What little toe we had left. What little toe we had left. And he not only found out that God was real, but that God can make beauty out of the ashes of whatever you're going through, and he could use you to affect tons and tons of souls for Jesus Christ. May we here at Sunrise get into the Bible this year with our hands and show the world that he can do it through each one of us. Amen?
Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay, the, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay, uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder and you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. E for instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime, 
they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.